City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, media director and pastoral resident Josh Whitney is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 on adultery. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Okay, I'm going to be reading Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Amen. Oh, well, welcome. Welcome. This is, uh, this is the first time that I've preached here in a little while, so it's always, it's always a huge blessing. Thank you, Eric, for, for the introduction. We will be going back into Matthew chapter 5, so if you want to get your Bibles out, or unless you've already done that, We're going to be in Matthew 5, as you just heard, wonderfully read. Thank you, Angel. It is is a joy to be able to do this. Um, I hope you guys know of how lucky we are to have the the able teaching that we get from the pulpit every Sunday um, between Joel and um, Eric and Isaac and John and Mark when they all take turns um, when they all take turns preaching, that we are, we're very blessed. And so um, I hope that as I'm up here, it is the word that is preached. That's what we see in Romans 10, that it's the word that is preached that brings power and not the individual person. Thank you, Lord. So um, with that, let's, let's kind of dive right into this. This, this sermon is, it's, it's a difficult one for sure, especially in our culture of where we live. Um, of self-identities and everything, this is going to pierce the heart. It's going to pierce the heart of who we are as individuals. Um, that was a wonderful time of prayer by Josh. Thank you, brother, for that. That this is going to go straight, straight to who we are um, as people and, in, and especially in this culture. Um, this passage continues uh, by going after the heart of mankind and our deepest and most hidden senses where you think you are alone and hidden from the world, a place in which you can live free and hide, no one would ever know and no one will ever judge you. No one will be able to see that, but I think we all know, however, that that's, that's a lie. Especially for those of us who are in Christ, we know that that's a lie. We know, because um, we, we know the truth. We know the truth of who God is, and not only that, we know ourselves, Right? We know our inner thoughts. We know what we think. We know what we feel, and we know what we conjure up uh, in our spirit. So why do we consider ourselves safe then in this fortress of our own minds? This section of scripture starting in verse 17 and going through to the very end of this chapter at verse 48 is all about the heart of the law why it was given, and its purpose. And I would argue, really, the entire sermon, the entire sermon is going to speak about the heart and speak about 
not only the heart, but God's relation to it. So with that being said, let's pray, and then we will we'll go into the text. Lord, it is because you have given us your word that I can even stand here today. Lord, it is because you have revealed yourself, God, that we can that someone could stand here at a pulpit or at a music stand with a, with a book in hand and preach confidently and proclaim to people truth, Lord, that they must fall under. Not because some people are smarter than others, Lord, but because this is your word and this is the authority of who you are revealed to us, not because of who, of who we are. Lord, I pray that you not only pierce the hearts of everyone here, Lord, that you would also convict me myself as we go through this. There is nothing set aside, Lord, that you are not capable of taking hold of. God, use this time to minister to your people, to minister to the church, God, the bride of Christ. Let this be all for your glory because you alone are worthy. You alone are king. God, thank you for your word. Be with us in this time. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. So then let's start at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, it's, it's very interesting, and Joel pointed out to this last week when we went through anger, and I think it's worth just kind of diving into a little bit. It's a very interesting phrase of how he starts this off. He says, you have heard. It's very different than, when, especially when we're taking in context, that's how we look at the word, we take it in context. The book of Matthew, the gospel account, according to Matthew, nine other times in, in one instance where Jesus talks about the scriptures, he says, it is written. Most notably, when we go into the previous chapter, in chapter four, it is written, is what he says to Satan as he tries to tempt him and give him things of the world and give him power. He says, it is written. This time, in this section, in this part of the sermon that he's preaching, he says, you have heard. Or in other times, you, he says, you have heard of old. And I think that's very important. I think that's very critical to how we understand this text, that there is a clear difference in how Jesus is approaching this here than how he approaches the scriptures, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets every other time uh, in his earthly ministry. And why is that? Is it to say that these parts that he's quoting are, are somehow not as important? Or these, you know, you've heard the Old Testament law, you've heard this radical view, but we're going to correct that here today. No, no, I think he's, and we get that, we know by verse 17, just a few verses before, when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. So with that in mind then, why is he saying something so different now of you have heard and not saying it is written, you shall not commit adultery? Because as Joel pointed out last week and he's doing it so, Jesus is continuing to do so here, we're talking about what was given to them as teaching, what was given to them as the rabbinical tradition or what was being most commonly taught. That is what he's going after, not the law itself. The law is good, and Jesus came to fulfill that, not to get rid of it. So then moving on as we, as we read the rest, he says that you shall not commit adultery. 
Now, this is, this is going straight back to the law, as I've said. So I, I believe as we're moving forward here, the, the most clear instruction that we can get from this is that he is talking about adultery. I don't think we're taught, we, we can get into the weeds of spiritualism, and sometimes there's, ap, there's many applications to Scripture, but there's one meaning, and we are talking about adultery here. Um, so as maybe some people have preached before, you might have heard talking about uh, trying to downplay this. You know, it's not really talking about adultery because that's extreme. It's more so um, we're talking about, uh, you know, offending people. No, I think the, the context is very clear. Um, we are talking about the law given to us in Exodus, Exodus 20 and 14, and then also Leviticus 20:10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That is what we're, this is that law that we are talking about. But again, we're doing, he's doing something different. He's going after here what the heart of the law is. So this is very interesting and it's very unique to Christianity because Jesus came, we believe him being the son of God, um, a member of the Trinity, God himself coming down, being fully God and fully man, not splitting it down 50-50, half and half, true God and true man, that he came to reveal himself as the word. And the way... uh, Something very specific that we see Jesus doing is something completely different from what we see in rabbinical and Jewish traditions. So, to give an example, um, now granted, this is not accepted in, in Judaism. It is, in, it is off of it. But a common thing, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this, is a Shabbos Goy. Anyone ever heard of that? So it's basically a, a Shabbat Gentile. Someone who can do the things that a, that a Jew cannot do on Shabbat, on Sabbath. Now again, I want to preface that by saying that that's, not, that's, that's frowned upon in Judaism, but it is a thing that arose. And I think what that points to, it's a very real part of, of Jewish heritage, is that the law is very specific, it is written, it is the letter. It is by the letter of the law that we, we know what God wants. And so with it is very stringent on what it actually says. Do exactly what it says. And it's actually where we come up with where we see Pharisees and Sadducees coming because they were there to make sure that the people followed not only the letter of the law, but what they taught you about the law so that you wouldn't fall into it as well. Jesus, however, preaches further than the letter of the law, further than what is the actual description of what you are to do. So Dennis Prager, he's a, he's a popular um, uh, conservative, and he's also Jewish by heritage. And as I was researching this and finding this, he said in an article one time, uh, back in 2013, there's only one organ that you can commit adultery with, and it's not the heart. And I think that points to something very critical, that when, when we see Judaism and we talk about Abrahamic, when people say Abrahamic religions, we kind of tend to think that we're all very close to each other. But we're not close at all. And we're not close because God has come. The Messiah has come. Jesus, incarnate, was what was promised And what we see in Judaism today, they have abandoned that. 
So they, they go over an Old Testament similar to ours, but they don't believe in the same God. Jesus said so himself. He said that if you knew the Father, then you would have accepted me. So we know, we know that, there, that what we follow is the true God. And he points, we're moving on, we're going to go back into our text. He points that it's not the letter of the law, but it starts in the heart. It starts there. And also, I will say that this affects more than men. This passage, when we look at as far as what's being taught to us, it's common. I'm just using this as an analogy. Excuse me, I'm not saying it's exactly how it's worded here. But commonly in the scriptures, we see brothers. In Greek, that can be translated brothers and sisters depending on its context. And so I think it would be foolish to say that the only people capable of following this text of what Jesus is talking about is only men and only married men, because this is going at the heart. I think that's the point of what Jesus is talking about here. He's going after the heart. So let's dive in a little bit then. What is lust? Um, I think the scriptures, well, not I think, I know that the scriptures are very helpful in this, is what I meant to say, and we can very much look forward or look at the Song of Solomon for that. So the Song of Solomon, uh, as some people may have suggested, that it's really meant to be an image of how God intimately loves his people. I would, um, I, I, obviously there's a lot that you can go into. You can very much see how God loves his people, but I believe truly that the Song of Solomon, the book Song of Solomon, is an image of man and woman, of what love, of what desire, of what that relationship firmly looks like. And so with that, I'm going to stop my description there. And I want to do so for a very specific reason. And that reason is, this, this is a matter of the heart, of what lust is in and what is known to be, I would argue, is understood. If you want to tell me that you can, you can watch certain things on TV and the movies because it doesn't bother you, or you enjoy going to the beach, that was a wonderful example that Josh brought up, if you can go to the beach and you just like to enjoy the view, and it doesn't affect you, and it doesn't bother you, or there are certain Instagram accounts that you follow and that you subscribe to because you just enjoy beauty. I, I would challenge you that God knows your heart in that. God knows your heart in that. If it's possible that you see attractive women or attractive men in certain areas of our culture today and it does not bother you, praise God. Uh, praise God. Not a lot of people can do that. But I will say that if you are hiding behind that, if you're hiding behind, oh, I just see beauty, I don't see anything else, God knows your heart. You cannot hide from that. You can't. So it is impossible for me to stand up here and give you a standard of what lust is and what admiring beauty is. People have tried. I don't even want to approach that. Because it is impossible for me to stand up here and give to all of you, this action is lust, this action is admiring beauty. This action is lust, this action is admiring beauty. I, I cannot create this law for you. No one can. But you know your own heart. 
You know your own heart. You know your own thought. So if you can say, sit there behind a facade of, I just enjoy beauty, but deep down that's not true, the Lord knows. The Lord knows, and he always finds that out. Trust me. He always finds that out. So let's go down into that. Let's go into our hearts. Um, Our hearts are in much, much needed help. So those of us in Christ, we are redeemed. Amen? Amen? We are redeemed, but we still live in a law of sin. And I say that if you want to flip with me over to Romans 7, we'll briefly go over this. Flip or tap. I am with Joel. I, I love the sound of flipping paper. So if you want to make my heart happy, you can do that. That's so good. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to start in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Uh, Going immediately, there's a quote here by John Owen. I apologize, it's not going to be up on the screen, but it comes from a book called Indwelling Sin. It's a wonderful book. I recommend everyone read this. But here's a small quote from that. Our Savior calls what comes out of the heart of an evil man the evil treasure of his heart. Luke 6.45. This treasure will never be exhausted by spending it. Just as with grace, the more it is used and exercised, the more it is strengthened and increased, so the more men sin, the the more they are inclined to sin. Sin deceives men into thinking that by a particular sin, they can so satisfy their lusts that they will not need to sin anymore. Impossible. The evil treasure is inexhaustible. So when, it ta- when, we are, when we're talking about being redeemed children of God, for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, we're given a new self. We're given a new flesh. But in this, John Owen rightly points out to that there still is an evil that lives in this world. There is the law of sin, and that wages war against the against who we are in Christ, the law of God. I'll also say, I didn't write this down, but in that book as well, John Owen argues, and this isn't quoting, this is just a point that he argues, that there are two problems with the Christian today. There are two problems with a Christian. One, you think of yourself, I am redeemed. I've been given a new self. There is no sin in me. I am free I am completely different than I was before. There's no need to fight the sin because the sin doesn't live in me anymore. The other failure of a Christian is to think, I am so wicked and sinful. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sinful. I don't even know what to do. I'm just so sinful. What on, what on earth am I supposed to do? And these are the two fallacies in that. One, if you believe that you are completely redeemed, you will fall every time. 
to think that there is not a, as John Owen calls, a kindling, a burning ember in your heart of sin. That when you think it is out, a blow of oxygen ignites the flame. You're also wrong to think that you are so worthless in your sin that there is no hope for you at all. Here's, here's a, um, no, you know what? We're not going to go there. We're going to continue forward. There's something that I want to point to, and that's, um, that's in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 as well, starting in, verse, uh, starting in verse 12. Here's how we know that there's hope for us in Christ. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's the word of God. Is the word of God that rightly convicts? Is the word of God that rightly corrects? It is not anyone's particular wisdom that they can convey to you that will convict you like the word of God read and the word of God preached. That's how we know of what this is. Romans 10 talks about how are they to hear unless someone preaches. It is the mission of God to have his word widely read and to have his word publicly preached. So let's move back then to, uh, to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 then. We'll just start over and we'll continue down. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Has already. Underline that. If you're writing notes, write write that down. Has already. When we're talking about what our heart produces, it produces sin. And this is that distinction between, between what Judaism will point to and what Christ rightly taught. That it's not about your physical actions. If you, didn't, if you didn't do it, you can't be guilty of it. Well, Jesus says you did do it. You did it in your heart. You have already committed adultery with her in your heart. So I, I should say then, does that mean that, that this lustful intent is the same thing as physical adultery on your spouse? I would say not. I would say that it's, it's not the same thing. So if your spouse convicts or says to you that I've looked lustfully at someone else, you shouldn't immediately run out for a divorce. Um, however, it still is a sin being committed in your heart. So just because it's not the same thing, just because you didn't actually commit adultery with someone physically, is that better? Is that better be like, well, all right, so I didn't actually commit adultery, so I'm off the hook. Did you, is that a win? Is that a victory? Jesus came to die for sin, and not only sin outwardly by committing a physical act, but the sin in our hearts. 
So I would, I would subscribe to what the biblical teaching in the scriptures is that everyone born is born into sin. And it is not because at one point you committed the sin that Jesus had to die for. But because of our former parents, Adam and Eve, we live in sin. We are born in sin. David says, in, in, my, in sin, I was made in my, in my mother's womb. So I believe that sin is here. So Jesus had to die to make that right. But if you'll, if you'll allow me to go into a small analogy, if, if the lust of your heart was the only thing you ever did wrong, it is still worthy of Jesus' death to make you right. Can you imagine... Because what, what, I'll say this first, but we are meant to be conformed to the image of God. Are we not? Romans, uh, Romans 8. We're meant to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it is by the renewing of our mind in Romans 12 that that is how we are, we are to become more like Christ. Could you imagine if Jesus here on earth in his earthly ministry was lusting after the women he was ministering to? Clearly, Clearly, it is our thoughts and our intentions in our heart and what we contrive in secret or what we think is secret that is worthy for the Son of God to be killed on a cross and to shed his holy blood. Praise be to God that he still did do that. And we are redeemed by faith in Christ. Please don't misunderstand this sermon as, as a sermon of law. That was my whole struggle with this, trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to say, is please do not hear this as a sermon of law, as a sermon of what to do, that this somehow points to what really matters is what you do. Do, 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 do. And we'll get, all, we'll get on to that later, but I just, I just felt like I wanted to say that. Please continue hearing, continue listening, Read as we're going through the word. Read it for yourself. What we're not, what I don't want to try and convince you of is be a better person. That's not what I'm trying to convince you of. So let's go into verse 29 then. This is probably what a lot of people have questions on today. Verse 29 and 30 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So that's not a law either. Uh, we don't believe in, in, um, in dismembering yourselves. Uh, that's not the goal of what he said. We don't believe in mutilating yourself. Because I, I will say this, if that's what we were meant to do, if we were meant to cut off our hand or our eye or something else, we would arrive to glory handless, armless, legless, eyeless, noseless, lipless, is, is how we would show up. Because I don't know if you knew this or not, we love our sin. Especially when we're discontinued from Christ and we're not pursuing after him, our flesh loves our sin. So what then are we to be talking about here? 
And also I have heard some people say, uh, pointing to very descriptive reasons as to why Jesus said the right eye and the right hand, I would just like to say that that, I don't think that's where we have to go. Um, I think more so than that, what we're talking about here are symbols of strength and symbols of of, uh, ability. So imagine, if you will, I don't know if you knew this, the majority of the world is right eye dominant. uh, And the majority of the world is also right hand dominant. Fun fact for you, though, it's not split the same way. So people who are right-hand dominant is more like one in five. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, people who are left-handed, excuse me, is more like one in five. But as people who are left-eye dominant, it's more like a third. So it's not just the same. It's a little fact for you. Um, But imagine living in a culture where you plowed your own fields, you grew your own food, you killed your own cows, you did all of these things yourself. Not only that, you fought in the war. Every able-bodied man was responsible for fighting in the war. Now, you can't do that with your right eye and your right hand. How successful do you think you're going to be in life? And this is what I think Jesus is pointing to. And think about this, not because it's so smart, but, but think about this. If you, this is, I believe, what the message Jesus was saying. If you weaken yourself now, you'll be restored later. If you strengthen yourself now, you will be destroyed later. If you weaken yourself now, you'll be restored later. But if you strengthen yourself now, you'll be destroyed later. It is more... You will, you will be granted more showing up into, into glory with only one eye and one hand because you will be restored in glory. If you were to sacrifice everything that you had here on earth, it is going to be restored to you in the next. However, if you love your sin and you hang on to it, and you keep your right eye, you keep your right hand, you keep these things close to you, because it's not worth sacrificing for God, it's not worth sacrificing for the kingdom, Jesus is very clear you will be destroyed later. I thank the Lord that it is not up to us to do these punishments for ourselves, but it was granted to Jesus Christ to take on all of that destruction on our behalf. That those who confess in the name of Christ are forgiven and restored. You don't You don't actually have to dismember yourself because Jesus took on all of that himself. So what's some application then for this? Here here are some ways that I see the text being addressed to you. For for those of you who are single here, and by single I mean uh, unmarried or uh, whether you're dating, courting someone, or you're unattached. If you're single here and being unmarried, you have an immense challenge in front of you because you don't have someone to put these romantic affections toward. So this is the time with which the devil wants to bring you away from Christ with the lie that you can find comfort, satisfaction, enjoyment, and fulfillment in the physical world. 
There is a lie being spread out there that, you know, we have needs. Stop it there. Or that God created us for companionship. Now, those are truths mixed into perverse lies from the enemy. Because here, here's the truth. Humans were created to be fruitful and multiply. It's true. What that doesn't mean, though, is that you have specific needs that need to be met, and you're only human. You were created for it. Humans were also created for companionship. But in relation to God first, and not only God first and also to each other, but that ultimately points to our creator. So dear, dear single ones, find your comfort, satisfaction, enjoyment, and fulfillment in Christ. And don't be taken by this lie. The world wants to tell you that you are, you are enough. It's what you feel and it's what you want. And who's to tell you that you can't have what you want? Jesus. He said, die to yourself. Uh, Nicodemus came to him and said, uh, what am I to do to be saved? He said, be born a second time. There's, there's an impossible feat in front of us of what it means to do what Jesus has called us to do. And I'm going to move on for a moment. For those of you who are married, you also have an immense challenge in front of you. This immense challenge is that you do have someone to pour these romantic affections towards, and it is the enemy's goal to shred that. To take this beautiful covenant that you have made with your spouse before God and destroy it. That is the challenge in front of you. That is the lie being given to you. And here are some of those lies. Is he really Mr. Right? Is she really Mrs. Perfect? Like, did I miss out on my soulmate? Or, here's the other one, that they have just been so busy and not, and not satisfying what you want and what you feel that you are deserved. So I will say that I know these lies and I have been taken by these lies. But it is Christ who is ultimately the one to free us from those lies. That you don't Pursue the temporary by trampling over the transcendent and holy. What is this lie of soulmates? You, can you show me anywhere in the scriptures that talks about there being one person God has ordained for you and it is your mission in life to find that one person? And it's possible that you, you miss that one person somewhere. Now, that's a lie. There's, I will say that there is such thing as a soulmate. It is the person that you said, I do to. That's your soulmate. That's the one that God has ordained for you to be with. There is not someone out there that you are supposed to be finding because maybe God destined you for someone, but you made the wrong decision somewhere. We are to be fully committed to our spouse. And here's what that looks like. Looks like the word. Ephesians 5. 
Ephesians 5, starting in 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Is himself its Savior. That's beautiful in and of itself, but we'll continue. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here, here you read that, and I think you can immediately dismiss, again, this other lie in marriage, that it's 50-50. That's probably the worst thing that I've ever heard. Because of what it points to is, you do yours, I'll do mine, and together we'll meet in the middle. This is what Ephesians just told you. Wives, give 100 to zero. Husbands, give 100 to zero. If your spouse is not putting up anything in the relationship, give 100 percent. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. That's hard. Ask my wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you know what Christ did for the church? It says so he gave himself up for it. But do you know what he did? He took on all of the responsibility of God's people bearing all of their punishment and killing it on the cross. Did, was, is, did he do any of that, any of that sin? Was he responsible for it and said, I'll do it? Yeah. That's hard. Husbands, love your wives in that way. Simple enough, straightforward, it's easy. In Matthew 5.20, we know that this is what he wants us to do because it says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what the job of the scribes and Pharisees were? To be righteous. To enact the law perfectly. And Jesus just told them, your job, if you follow me, is to do it better than them. And I know again that that's what he's trying to say because at the end of chapter 5, he says this. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, be perfect, obey the law better than, uh, than the scribes and Pharisees. So what is the hope for us then? Obey the law? Yes, actually, it is. And here's why. 
because perfect righteousness is everything that is required from us. So here's the second question. Who's going to give us that righteousness? Because we, we aren't. I don't know if you knew this in, in the years that you've been living, but you cannot, you cannot give perfect righteousness. You might be able to keep it up really, really well for a few minutes. But what, we've rec- what we just heard in, in this section of lust is that the sin starts in your heart. Control your heart. Don't actually, do, don't actually commit adultery, but stop every evil thought that comes into your mind. And then you're good. Clearly, we cannot keep up this righteousness. Clearly, we are not capable of doing that. So what then is our hope? Our hope is that Jesus Christ is our perfection. He was the one. He was the one that did the law perfectly. He fulfilled the part of the covenant that we could not. The covenant was made at the beginning. Do righteousness and you will live. Don't do righteousness and you will perish. We couldn't keep that end of the bargain. So what did God do? He kept that end of the bargain on our behalf. That's the beautiful thing when we look through the, when we look through the scriptures. That's not the Bible. When we look through the scriptures is that it never changed. The thought today is that I'm so glad Jesus came because now we don't have to worry about the law. Show me one place where Jesus said that he, he came here to stop the law or he didn't like the law. The only thing that he said is that the law is lacking. It could not save. That's what it couldn't do. So what did Jesus do? He also fulfilled that part of the law where he is the word. He is, when we look at what the law is, it's because Jesus came down, as we know in John 1, 1, he came down as the word in flesh. So we know what he says is true because this word is who God is. And he fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf. So then for those of you who are in Christ, rejoice that you are not responsible for any of your righteousness. It is not yours to pursue. First Corinthians 10, 12, 13 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is commonly taken out and then says, God cannot give you more than you can handle. That's wrong. God absolutely gives you more than you can handle. It's the reason the son came. is because you cannot do what, what you can, I'm getting lost in my analogy. You can't do everything that the Lord has put in front of you. That is why we have a savior. That is why we have Jesus Christ. What this does say though, however, is that you, Christian, can withstand any temptation laid before you because of Christ, because of his death on the cross, because he fulfilled our side of the covenant that we were then guaranteed a place. Not only guaranteed a place, we were guaranteed 
fulfillment. We were guaranteed to be made whole. How? Through the Spirit. The Spirit, as told to us in Galatians, or I'm sorry, Ephesians, is a seal, a guarantee. What the Greek there is trying to, is trying to explain is a down payment, like on a property. The Holy Spirit in you is the down payment for your inheritance that will be later. God himself living in you, church, is just the down payment for what is promised to you later. Everything, everything is going to be restored to us. Everything is going to be restored to us. I cannot tell you how happy I am that God is going to restore me. Look at me, I'm standing here on my own two legs. I got, I got both my arms, I got both my hands, I got both my eyes, and I cannot wait to be restored. Because at that moment, because of the guarantee given to me through the Spirit, because of Christ's death, pain, not just physical pain, but the pain and the anguish of knowing that there's a holy God that you cannot please with your own righteousness is gone forever. There's no more need or desire that I'm going to fail again. I'm going to let him down. Sin has a grip on me and I don't know what to do. That's going to be gone. Gone forever because we will be in the presence of the Lord forever. Revelation talks about that when, the, when New Jerusalem comes down, there will be no need for a son. Why? Because Jesus and his light will be all of the radiance that we'll need. No darkness. No darkness. Think about that. Jesus said in John 3 that people are afraid of the light because they're afraid that their deeds will be exposed. So they love the darkness. In the new city, when everything is fulfilled, there's going to be no darkness. There's not going to be any corner or crevice that we can hide in our sin because the light is going to expose everything and everything will be holy and good and right and just and beautiful in his sight. Everything. If you are here, and this is your first time, um, or you've been coming here for a while still, but you have never put your faith in Christ, I have no words of a better life for you. I have no words of how to have a happier life or how to have a more successful life. Other than, this this is the encouragement I can give you, is that you're being promised a lie. Right now, with what the world tells you, you are being promised a lie. The lie is that you are good on your own and that you don't have to worry about all this lust that I've been talking about and adultery and fornication because you are free from religion. You're free from all this. But this reality is not one where you get to pick the religion you like or don't like. I'm not here to ask you, won't you make Jesus king? He's already king. If you've been sitting here and you have not put your faith in him, Jesus is still king. He's still ruler over this world. I'm not here to convince you to give Jesus a shot. That's not what I want to do. 
as some preachers, unfortunately, I hate putting those two things in the same sentence, have tried to tell you of just try Jesus. There's no trying Jesus. He's king. Walk into, uh, walk, walk into some uh, kingdom where there's a king and queen and be like, I reject your authority. We do. We do. Even those of us in Christ still do. But here's the beauty. Jesus is king. That's the good news. Jesus is king. You don't have to sift through the different religions and find out which one best fits your needs. There is truth in this world. That is not what's talked about today, but there is truth in this world. There's objective truth in this world. If you don't believe me, ask someone if you can slap them. There's objective truth in this world. We cannot hide it. As much as you try and do so, please, I I beg and I urge you and I implore of you, Jesus is king. He's ruling over the world and he set himself as the propitiation, which means the payment instead of, for your sin. Those who confess in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. That's a promise. It's a promise. It's not a test. You can turn from your sin, because I know, I know that when, when you're out and having fun, it makes sense. But at some point, you sleep in your bed alone by yourself, in your own thoughts. And I know that this question haunts you. What is this purpose? What is the meaning of any of this? I know that's a thought. I know you think that. Everyone thinks that. I think that at points. And I praise the Lord that he is the meaning. I don't have an answer for everything of what will happen tomorrow, but I do know this, that Jesus Christ Again, I'm going to say it again. His king. And he has given to us what it is that we are to do. What is the meaning of life? What are we supposed to do? What do I do with this sin? Do I even believe in sin? It's all here because he loved us enough to reveal himself to us so we don't wander around aimlessly thinking about what if. He has given the word to us. I pray that you take that seriously. I pray that you... Find that the word is true. We're going to end up closing here in a minute. I've, I hope that, that you've heard the word. That for you, Christian, I just want to sum up in this way because, I don't know, I just feel like I, I want to sum it up. If you are saved, that the hope of Christ is in you. And you don't have to be bound by lust and, and sin anymore. You're free from that. So this law of sin that Paul talks about in in Romans 7, I want to say this. it, It doesn't mean, however, what am I to do? There's a law of sin. Romans 6 says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may, uh, grace may increase? May it never be. How are you who died to sin still live in it? Clearly Christ has called us out of sin and it's possible through the down payment given to us by the Spirit for our further inheritance where we will be made whole. That is the hope. We're going to be made whole, church. If you're not saved, none of this means anything to you. 
I would argue it still does. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Find freedom in serving the king, not a king, the king. And be free from sin. Be free from the lie that tells you you are your own person. You are made for yourself. And fall under the lordship and salvation of God, who not only shows you what the standard is, but provides the means for that standard. So we're going to take communion now. So as we pray, pray over this word that you just heard and pray now for yourself. Because what we're about to take is beautiful and is serious. And so uh, let's, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, how majestic is your name above all the earth. Lord, there is none who can sway your hand. You are firm in your ruling. You are firm in your uh, ordinances, Lord. You are unmovable and unshakable. Father, we are here because of who you are. Lord, for those in this room who have professed faith and belief in Christ and who have been saved by your precious blood, Lord, redeem their minds daily, Lord. Renew them, sanctify them, make them more like your son, God. And if there are people who have never turned aside to see, to see you, Lord, that you would shake them now. Lord, I pray even that you would not give their minds peace and rest until they've come to the understanding of Jesus and his salvation freely given. Lord, you are worthy of it all. We thank you that you've given to us your word that we can understand it more clearly. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we're gonna be made whole. And so as all this that I pray in your son Jesus' holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.